Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love. Thank you for being here. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. If you're new here, I am, most people know me as an independent hip hop artist, and I've been doing it for 20 some years, and really grateful to be doing that. Um, you know, I've done a number of other things as well. I'm a convert to Islam, and I worked as a while, as, for a while as an imam. And um, I've also done activism and organizing and writing and I teach classes and things like that. But most people know me from my music. And I've just been really fortunate to live a very unique life. And have, I know and have loved and been loved by and shared life with and been uh, uh, educated by so many different people from so many different walks of life. And you know, the connections between people are really important to me. And that's the reason that I started this podcast, you know, because I, I, I love to speak to people on the level of their humanity. Sometimes we speak to people, most people that are leaders are really controversial because what makes somebody a leader is that they've done something that other people haven't done, or they've said things a way that other people haven't said it, or they've um, just conducted themselves in a way that creates a new way of seeing and being and expressing and doing and achieving. And so leaders are usually very controversial because of that. And so a lot of the people that I speak with are leaders and they're very controversial. And sometimes they're even polarizing. Sometimes they, they even, something about their being is just very controversial. And so I talk to some people that are like that, you know, but I'm speaking to them. My intention in speaking to them is less about the, the controversial stuff in their platform because most of the people I talk to, I might not agree with them 100%, but I don't need to, you know, as a human being, as somebody who's navigating life, I benefit and I learn a lot by talking to somebody, especially on the level of their humanity. And so that's, what this is about. When I say the travelers, what we mean is that we're co-travelers in the journey of life. And the same way that the body needs to be exposed to the sun and the body needs to eat certain food, the heart also needs to be exposed to other people. We need to witness other people and we need other people to see us. We need to see and be seen sometimes. you know, It's also a challenge because you got the egos bumping up against each other. But the soul and the heart are also alive and the soul and the heart also need connection with others. This is just the way we're designed, I believe. And most of the wisdom traditions agree. And also most scientific and anthropological and sociological and, and, and you know, studies of human beings also say that we need each other. You know, so that's what this podcast is really about. And our intention is to connect with each other on the level of the human experience on like, okay, these are the things that you've done and maybe you're known for these things that you've done. Some of the people I talk to are less lesser known, but they're still leaders in my eyes. They're still people that have done amazing things. So it's it, we wanna talk about what you've done, but we wanna talk about what does it mean to you? And what was it like for you? And what's the wisdom that you gleaned from it? And how did you, how did you keep going? And from where do you draw the courage and the insight and the fortitude to do what you've done, because we want to learn from that, you know? It's really amazing. I'm recording this on the, you know, the week that Dave Chappelle was attacked on stage. 
And that was a big day for a lot. Of, I wasn't there, you know, but it was a big day for a lot of us because, you know, Dave Chappelle and um, Yasin Bey and Talib Kweli and so many other people in that cohort um, are, are very, very important to me and to a lot of us for a number of different reasons. But that day was really big because it was the Eid. It was the festival at the end of Ramadan. And a number of us in that circle are Muslim. And so that's a big day for us. And then also it was the day of the release of the new Black Star album, um, you know, Yasin Bey and, and Kwali. And it's really amazing that these three people are friends of mine and they're people that I really love. And it's amazing to me to be able to say that. And that's kind of why it's like, that's kind of why I'm here. Like I want to share these people and like what it's like to know them. You know, we see so much and, you know, I know that there's controversy about Dave Chappelle and I'm not here to necessarily address that, but you know, as much as we admire a lot of the people that we do, they mean so much to us. They say, don't meet your heroes. But my experience is that most of the heroes that I feel drawn to on a heart level, more than just the work that they do, but on a heart level, most of these people that I've met, I realize the work, their work is just the breeze that comes off the ocean, but they're the ocean. And that when you engage them and experience them, they're even more beautiful than you would imagine them to be. And they're also human. And that's okay. You know what I'm saying? There's things about them that you realize like, okay, this is your humanity. You know what I mean? Th these are your inconsistencies. These are, these are your, you know, curmudgeonly ways. <laughs> They're like a lot, of, a lot of leaders, a lot of creative people, a lot of thoughtful people, a lot of considerate people. A lot of times we have these little things about us, you know. But the more I learn about a lot of these people, the more I see that they're, they're just amazing. You know, and Dave is like that. And for Dave to be attacked on that particular day or any day, really, is really, um, it's really hurtful. You know, I I'd spoke to him just a few days ago um, and, you know, his wife kind of like let his circle of friends know that he's okay and that everything's all right and what have you. Um, but it, I just got to thinking about Dave a lot in the last couple of days. And it really made me think about why we do this podcast you know, during the, the pandemic, Dave Chappelle uh, lives in Ohio. He grew up between D.C. and this small town in Ohio. When he got some, when he first became successful in Hollywood, he bought a house in Ohio. And that's where his family has lived ever since. And, you know, they just expand and add on to this house and maybe, you know, rehab certain parts. But this is where they live. They live on a farm in Ohio. And when the pandemic first started, Dave said, people need each other. We need community. That's part of why he moved there. Because he said, I want to live with real people. My heart's going to need it. You know, he, his, both of his parents, his father passed away, but his father and mother are, are um, professors. And Black history and, you know, history in general is something that he's very, very adept in and trained, you know, really educated in history. And, and knows, he knows a lot about the history also of culture workers, people that they call entertainers, you know, and what happens to them and, and the things that they experience and what have you. He's a student of that. So he said, I want to live with real people and I want to stay, I want to be a real person. So he made his home and his family's home in Ohio. And, you know, he walks around and, and people know him. He's able to be a regular person and, and his children have children that they've grown up with. And his wife has a circle of friends and like they live in this community for real, you know, that not surrounded by guards and not all this stuff. Um, 
And in the beginning of the pandemic, Dave said, people need each other. People need art and artists need each other. This is something that these are needs. These are not negotiable. These are needs. These are rights that human beings have. So he built in the middle of one of his friend's cornfield, they cleared the cornfield and they built an outdoor venue with socially distant seating and a whole way that people could come in and be safe so that they could have a stage, they could have an outdoor venue and people could still experience art in a way that was safe. And then he created a bubble for artists where they had, you know, testing and, you know, certain areas where we hung out and, you know, he would send a jet to pick people up from different cities. And he brought in all of these different artists, like at different levels of notoriety and fame and success, but just with the feeling that like we need to be together. And so, you know, and people were hanging out in a way that was really amazing and really healing. And I got the call that uh, my name was coming up. And so I went. And it was one of the most validating, healing experiences that I could have ever asked for. I didn't realize how much I needed it, you know? And I'm, I'm forever grateful to him for that time. Profoundly important experience. I just realized I have to plug in my computer here. I was, I was plugging in some other stuff, you know, and one of the beautiful things is that, you know, Dave in the morning, if you catch him in the morning when he's in coffee mode, you can have these really beautiful conversations with him. And that's the, those are the times that he and I connected. I was there for around a week and we went to the coffee shop. And one of the days in the coffee shop, this, this white man from, you know, Ohio is the Southern Midwest. It's like, you know, Kentucky and like it's the southern Midwest. And so this man came and he heard that you could talk to Dave Chappelle if you go to the coffee shop. So he did. And he was there to tell Dave that he thought Dave was racist. And so Dave sat there and talked to him for a long time. And at the end of the conversation, Dave said, now go on, get. You can hear it on the Midnight Miracle podcast. And while he's retelling the story, you hear me laughing and kind of just commenting. And the man said, I don't have to get, this is a free country. I can go wherever I want. And Dave said, that's the thing that, that we, that's where we, that's where we're experiencing life differently in this country. You as a white man can go wherever you want. And that's unique to you, you know, but he sat there and had a conversation with this guy. And then the next day, you know, Dave and a few of us are out there sitting. I think Mo Amer was there and some others, and we're sitting around talking at the coffee shop in the back in this little kind of like courtyard area. And there's our, our little group and we're talking and having this beautiful conversation. And part of what he was talking about was the fact that our society is so fractured and polarized. You know, he said, it, it's a problem when people don't trust the doctors, people don't trust the news, people don't trust the police, people don't trust the government, you know, people don't trust the culture workers, even the artists are being canceled. He's like, everybody's being called out and canceled for something, you know, and some of them it's probably justified, but everybody is going through this right now. And it's true. Like there, there's, there's almost no person of notoriety where there's not somebody saying that this person shouldn't have the notoriety they have because they're somehow immoral and toxic and what have you. And, you know, it's just polarized across the board. And 
You know, he said, people don't trust the post office. People don't trust, you know, they're like everybody is battling over everything. And he's like, if you don't have any even shared concept of what reality is, how do you have a country? You know, and we're talking about this and we're talking very frank. We're talking super like blunt about stuff. And we're not being, you know, and there's a middle-aged white guy who's back in this area with us and he's by himself. So it's our little party and he's sitting off by himself and his energy is getting more and more tense and we're trying to figure out why. And, and, and we're kind of making eye contact and we notice this, you know, and then he stands after, after about 45 minutes, he stands up and he walks over to us and his muscles are tight and his whole posture is tight. And it's like, Oh man, what's about to happen? And he says, I'm, I'm really nervous, but I have to say this. And so we're just quiet. And he goes, are you Brother Ali? And I'm like, yeah. Now, first of all, my ego is like, man, I really want my man Dave to see me have a fan moment. That he's not like, are you Dave Chappelle? You know, and Mo Amer was there. And maybe Michelle Wolf was there. I can't remember who from the crew was there. Maybe Donnell Rollins was there. Um, but... I'm like, I said, yeah. And he said, man, I'm such a huge fan. And he said, because of you, I read James Baldwin. And because of you, I read the Quran. And, you know, he said, you, you just, you've, you've, opened my, you've opened my eyes to all of these things that I never would have even looked into. And he's like, I'm not a Muslim and I don't, you know, but man, I'm so happy that I know this stuff. And when he left, I cry a lot. If this is your first time here, I cry a lot. I, I can feel it is right here. This right there. Um, but Dave said, man, this is what we're here to do. He said, this is how I know that we're of the same tribe because he and I see the world very similarly. And um, he said, you know, and, and we have to speak for our positions and we have to speak for our people and we have to speak for the things and represent the things that we believe in. But we always do it in a way where we're affirming the humanity of, even of the people that we disagree with. And by doing that, we're, ele we're focusing on humanity itself and we're elevating humanity itself. And the shared humanity is what's going to bring about the understanding between people. And he said, you know, we're, we're trying to be in the line of Muhammad Ali. You know, so even the people that disagreed with Muhammad Ali, when Muhammad Ali was, you know, one of the most famous people and when he was fighting and when, especially when he was opposing the Vietnam War, his approval rating in America was extremely low. People really de detested him. And, you know, even a lot of black leaders were distancing themselves from him. You know, but now we look back at that time and we see his tremendous courage and just loyalty and and you know the 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 integrity that the integrity that he had in that moment that he was willing to give up everything that he had earned they didn't give him the 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 title of of the most famous respected person they didn't give him the title of champ they didn't give him the title of greatest of all time he earned those things but they could take it away because of the fact that they had a certain level of power and they said unless you <clears throat> enlist in the military, we're not going to let you fight. And we're going to take away your passport. And they threatened him with jail. And he said, never mind jail. Get a, get, a, get, a, get a firing squad out here. I'm ready to face death for what I believe in. 
you know. But the reason that people respected Muhammad Ali so much is because on a human level, even if you disagree with his positions, even if you disagree with the, the words that he's saying, you have to admire the integrity. You have to admire the, the willingness to sacrifice for what you believe in, to literally sacrifice it all because of how much you believe in what you believe in. And so even people that differed with him respected him on a human level. That's what this podcast is about. And Dave said, we are always going to speak to people based on a shared humanity. Even if we're saying something, even if we're really digging down into something that, we dis that, that people might really disagree with us about, we're always going to speak to people based on, hum on the human experience and on the level of humanity. That's what this podcast is about. That's what the Travelers Podcast is about, you know, um, that it's not about being the same. Unity isn't the same as uniformity, you know, but really what's required for us to move forward as individuals, as a society, is to really focus on what is the heart experiencing, what's the soul experiencing, and to learn from each other's intellectual understandings of things. We're going to have different intellectual framings of things. We're going to have different language, different perspective. You know, we've also got egos, we've, you know, but the reality is that if we focus on the heart level, there's understanding that can be built and we can even benefit from people that we don't see, don't understand or, or believe the same things or have the same, uh, you know, reference points and what have you. So, you know, there are people that, you know, if I, if I post certain things or certain individuals or certain guests that we have, you know, listening to the podcast, tapping in, being a part of this thing is really about connecting with people on that heart level. So thank you for being here. Uh, we're sponsored by Zakat Foundation. We're sponsored by Udimentary. We're sponsored by Rezma Menikim in his new book, The Quaking of America. This episode is with my dear brother Slug from Atmospheres, part two of a conversation that we had. This is a, a just a heart to heart between two friends in a hotel room in Madison. He came to visit me on my tour. So I've already talked a lot, so I'm gonna leave you to this episode, enjoy. How do you feel about the talk yesterday? It was good. Uh, you know, it's always like with everything in hindsight, you go, oh, I could have said that. That would have been funny and true and it fit. You know, so there's certain elements, or especially when we went to the audience questions where, you know, what have you been doing during the pandemic? And it's like I, I was able to break down what, what how the pandemic affected my life in the sense of my dad life or in the sense of you know but i didn't really get to really speak on my career part of it as much or the fact that like you know i've been wearing the same sweatpants now for like two years you know what i mean it's like just the yeah, little I saw a picture of your record shop today i was like oh, i know those pants yeah yeah uh <laughs> no for real I, these is, i got I, I bought a few pairs of these so that this is they're so comfortable when i realized that i was like oh order again and uh yeah, so now it's like all I rock. I don't wear them on stage. Ant won't let me, but I think everybody that everybody I know that tours like really settles into like an outfit with like three versions or th mm -hmm. and then just rock with it. You know, it's like uh, you know, there's a weird thing about it too, though, because one time when one a person told me something like you can you can look at a person and and tell what year they peaked by what they're wearing. Jerry Seinfeld. 
Did he say that? Yeah. And, and so, and he said that men particularly, and he said usually like whenever a man, the year he got married, because that was the year that he scored the best woman that he could possibly get. So he dresses so like that's that forever. That's the highlight of yep. his life. Yep. And so he's stuck. You know what I mean? So you could be like, that guy's 2002. That guy is 2005. Yep. This guy is 2012. Yeah. And that's, that's what I feel like. I feel like. And, and it, it, it started making me think like, man. So what do women think about a dude who is dressing for right now? Like if they're, if they're together, like what, what are you shopping for? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh yeah, trying to, trying to get that update. Right. Yeah, the, the automatic update. But otherwise I thought the talk was good, you know. I was pretty comfortable. Um, I'm always kind of, I, I'm always kind of uh, impressed when I feel that comfortable in front of an audience, you know, I, I've when when it's when it's me time and I'm on stage doing these songs. That's different because you have this. It's almost like a pillow of the music that you can sit in. The beats are so loud, everything's so big that the small little nuances of you know the voice cracks or you chose the wrong word. A lot of that gets covered up by the excitement of the music and the lights. But when you're you know, speaking in a more intimate kind of environment, but still publicly in front of an audience, I, that's not always my comfort zone, you know? And so when I am comfortable, I really appreciate that. I really, I appreciate maybe the wrong word. I really feel happy about that. I feel proud of that moment. I feel, um, you know, those, those are the things where I'm like, oh man, like that felt great. You know, I don't want to do it again anytime soon, but that felt great, you know? Man, I can't wait to do it, to do it again. <laughs> like, whenever I'm talking to there's a room full of people just looking at me, I'm just like, yeah, this is about right. This, this is what we should be doing. <laughs> like, man, yeah, I, I was like for years, man, flying home from tour. Like, I would be on tour, and every Monday I flew back to Minneapolis to do Jamali Project to teach. Like, we have this book called Being Muslim. It's like a text, like a like a, a guide, you know what I mean? Like a handbook for how to be Muslim and me and the twins actually, Iman and Khadija that danced with us, and, and my wife, like we taught that book over the course of a year and a half, just Monday nights. So I would feel like flying home from tour on the one day off and like sitting and teaching for, you know what I mean, for a couple hours. I I think it's great when it works, but it's, it's just such a, it's so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part where I'm not always extra comfortable with that i don't mind vulnerability um and i and i embrace it uh, often but i but it's always under my control it's always mm -hmm. within you know i still get to decide how much vulnerability i'm going to put in there you know and so it's it's a it's an interesting kind of gray space for me with vulnerability because do I, you still uh, do you still when you because it used to be that we would make demos of songs on a four track or like a demo version with a handheld mic on the on the computer. Mm -hmm. And then after all the demos were together, then there would be rewrites and things like that and then go in the studio. But I know now that you record your vocals at your workspace. So do you still re-record your vocals or do you record them right when you write them? It and depends, that's it? it depends. Like uh, I will, it, it goes every direction. Like I've got some songs where if you hear it, 90% of that was created as I wrote it. But then there's other songs where it's like, I wrote something and it wasn't 
the idea wasn't fully flushed out, but I still needed to make sure that I could get it, get down and go, okay, that's the right amount of bars to get this point across. And then over time I'll come back and I might change four, eight, 12 bars of it and make it better. You know what I mean? And then there's other times where like you go back and listen to it and you're like, this is just too loose. I've been listening to the song now for as a demo for three months, I can go in and I can knock, I, I can one take Jake these now and make it tighter. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And so it's like, it, it goes, it goes in all kinds of different directions. The, to me, the, the, the beauty of having my own space to record in is that I have that luxury to right. however I want this to happen. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's like, cause I've been in studios where it's like, well, you won't probably get to be back in here again. So right. I'm going to make this as great as possible right now just to go home and be like oh there's still things i wish i could fix you know and then i've had other situations where it's like the studio's open you can come over whenever you want and i go in there and i nitpick and nitpick and nitpick and spend all this time (laughs) you drive anthony crazy with that man like there's times where i'll be like hey what you doing he's like man sitting here trying to not listen to slug change a syllable that nobody's ever gonna notice But it's funny, like there's a certain like way that he runs his hand through his hair when he's like, <laughs> when he's at his, uh, he does it with me too. But he'll just be like, yeah, man. Uh. <laughs> the best part is that, you know, and, and that's the thing. When, when he moved out to California for a little while, mm-hmm. there was a huge change in the way that we worked. He hasn't had to watch me record since. Mm-hmm. Because even when he came back to Minnesota and I was recording in the studio, even before I had my space, he didn't have to be there. He'd wait till I was done, and then he'd come back when it was time to start like changing sequences or or or, or mixing even. You know, mm. now I literally do everything independently and then show him. Sometimes him and Bill will come over for practice, and I'll be working, and you know, I'll be like, oh sorry guys, I'm still working on something. If you don't mind, and they're like, no, that's fine, and they'll sit and they'll talk for thirty minutes while I'm sitting there recording, and. He doesn't notice what I'm doing because he's talking to Bill, so it's no big deal. So I, I haven't I haven't made him run his fingers through his hair in a long time. Mm. Uh, but what I love is that if you listen to the acapellas, we got songs where you could hear him and Bill talking in the background. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like because, you know, I used to be so worried about the quality of the recording mm-hmm. and forgot what kind of music we actually make and how it don't matter. You know, it's just about capturing a feeling. And so yeah. now... I turn in files to Joe all the time that are like, these are noisy. These are not right. You know, I, they're loud enough. I'll always make sure of that. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I like them. I'll always make sure of that. But as far as like, you can hear buses drive by. You can hear the airplanes because, you know, it's, it's near the airport. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's like you can hear all, you can hear Aunt and Bill talking. You can hear the kids. I'd be recording when the kids are upstairs doing, when they were doing schoolwork upstairs, you yeah. know, and, and you can hear them walking around and all kinds of stuff. Like, it, it, it doesn't matter. Man, when I saw Marvin Gaye, like that footage of Marvin Gaye recording I Want You in, a frick, in those pants you're wearing right now, like laying down on a couch. <laughs> high as hell <laughs> and just like i want you like he's laying on the couch and the band is doing their thing and it looks like they're like you know they're in the la motown studios but it's like those dudes are like it's set up like a living room and he's holding a handheld mic laying on his back chewing bubble gum <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like okay man i'm definitely spending way too much time mm-hmm. worried about way too much effort man like because really all that effort is likely distracting you from what you're really trying to get done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it distracts you from the actual 
not just the creative process, but the actual creation. I mean, just imagine if you and your wife were trying to make another child and you were like, okay, let me make sure that this is perfect over here. And I got these candles and all this effort you put in. It, it's just, would you just go fuck? Just you know what I'm saying? Get it, just, <laughs> just get, get busy, it. man. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, and that's what I feel like the difference is now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, you know, my kid's going to watch this and be like, so that's how babies are made <laughs> sorry <laughs> babies are made when the tv in mom and dad's room gets real loud yeah. <laughs> uh, okay i got distracted there but all right so so to me that's the best part of having this you know it took me forever to finally create my own workspace i always had my own demo space i've been doing that for a long time um you know ever since aunt left minnesota the first time mm. you know I, I i then was like well i need to learn how to do this on my own get beats from him and do this and i loved it because then i wasn't even like you know you go to ant's house on a day that wasn't a sunday and maybe kind of feel like you're putting him out because he's you know he's got life going on he's got mm -hmm. other things going on and i'm here on a random thursday at three o'clock and and there's things in your house happening and I'm, I'm sorry that i'm here you know you just let the beat run and leave me down here you know that's cool but still i would sometimes feel intrusive so once i finally you know probably about 2009 i think was when i figured out how to use garage band yeah and then uh and then it was it was over. I mean, I've got whole albums on my old computer of joints that you made sitting outside on your on your back porch, back porch yeah. holding a handheld mic, yep. writing rhymes and then recording them. Yep. And a lot, I mean, some of those songs have come out in other formats. But yeah, some of them. I mean, I've got one called. You were just naming them the month. Yeah. Like you would send me like nine joints and be like September. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then in the in the beginning of November, you'd send me one called October. And it would just be the yeah. those joints. Yeah, we 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 have a lot of music that was like that, you know. And back in the day, we used to take the four track songs that never made it to albums and give them to people because then they would go ahead and flood the internet with them. And we yeah. felt good about that because he was like, "Yeah, I don't want nobody to have to pay for this, but if there's people out there that want to hear it." It might as well be out there, you mm -hmm. know? And so Ant used to give all that stuff to Shane and Shane used to put it on the internet and I would give it to, you, you remember Advisor from Odd Jobs? Mm -hmm. I would give him stuff, he'd put it on the internet and then he would come back and give me the stuff that he traded for it, which is how I learned about Aesop Rock. Mm -hmm. Like the, the first time I ever heard an Aesop Rock song was Advisor came back and gave me a tape. <laughs> Funny enough, he gave me a tape full of an Eminem album, right. and I knew who Eminem was because he had an EP, the I don't, the, the I don't give a fuck EP, and I was like, oh, he's good. He kind of sounds like Redman to me. Is how I how I seen it, like mm -hmm. a, like a white dude doing Redman. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> Advisor showed up with a whole album, and it mm -hmm. was like the leak yeah. of his album, and I was like, this is insane like this isn't red man this is its own thing yeah and then you finish the album and you're just sitting around like well do i rewind it let me flip the tape over you flip the tape over and there's some dude rapping on the other side that and sounds you're like, like nothing what is this it's yeah. aesop rock yeah. and it's just like oh my god and i wore that side of the tape out yeah. the whole tape got wore out to be honest because i would play the eminem side for anybody who had never heard of this dude yeah. to be like yo you see this dude he's he's gonna be really famous we knew mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. eminem would be famous and then the other side you see this dude he's going to be one of the best ever. You know what right. I'm saying? It's like you knew then that Aesop was special. I remember you borrowed a car from some lady friend that you had and you came and picked me up one time early on, like when we first started, and you and you showed me both sides of that tape. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing, man. It was There was an early Rhyme Sayers tape too where one side was the Hobo Junction high row battle 
and then the other side was a bunch of headshot songs. I, I think that was the thing that 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 was you know you would take something and be like, okay, people want this, right. so let me put my stuff on the other side, you <clears> know. <throat> and and it's weird because I don't think any of us got the idea from anybody else. I think we it was just collective consciousness that was like, this is the new way that you could promote your stuff, especially with the internet starting and people trading music on the internet. It's like, yeah, why wouldn't I want a copy of a Roots concert right. at First Avenue, right, right, you know? Right. And then you get this other stuff on side B and be like, oh, I don't know if I like it or not, but if, but, but whatever, you flip the tape over and listen to it. And then people and start I mean, to- so many of the early, like even, you know, the people that weren't necessarily uptown, like in 75 or whatever, like the way that they heard it was that somebody brought a boom box to the PAL or something like that and recorded a jam. And it's like Africa Bambada and Grandmaster Kaz and like all of this stuff. And then would circulate those tapes. Yep. And I wonder who is the first dude to ever be like, and here's me in my apartment rhyming to. <laughs> On the other side of the tape. Yeah, because yeah. I know somebody Somebody did. had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Rest in peace, K Slay, man, speaking of those mixtapes, yeah, those right. early mixtape DJs. Um, and so much of that stuff was done on a four track and like to me it's like the fact that you and Anthony found each other just there's no other way to see that than it really being from God just that and, like there's and another Musab. and Musab yep. yeah Musab yep. is like a major link in that but the fact that like you know that you and Anthony came together there's just so much about it having having such a similar background even you know, it's funny that, and 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 I'm I'm glad that you gave credit to God for that because, the fact that, if I really trace how I met Anthony, it's crazier than that even because really what happened was, I met a really really good friend of mine. Uh, I I would I would call him a mentor, but he he would decline that title. Uh, his name was Hassan. Mm -hmm. I met Hassan in 1990. Um, I'd known of this man longer because a lot of my friends would talk about how they had gotten part-time jobs helping Hassan move equipment around or doing stuff. Hassan was a, a man from Kenya who had a house that had a storefront on 36th and Cedar in South Minneapolis. And um, he ran a mobile disc jockey company out of the storefront he also did like you know he'll fix your van you know what i'm saying like he, <laughs> he he did whatever he could do he had just all these side hustles basically mm -hmm. but a lot of my friends had gone over there to get part-time jobs just literally filing records away for him or helping him keep the spot cleaned or maybe helping him carry equipment on a saturday to go do some wedding dj stuff so i went in there one day like look i want a job and i want to be a dj and you are obviously, you know, you got work every Saturday. I want to do this and I want to learn how to like be in front of people in a way that's not just like playing records for them to dance. But I, you know, and he was like, you know what? I'll take you. You got to get yourself a tux. I was like, all right, how do I get a tux? He's like, here's, here's what you do. You're going to, you're going to get a used tux for like $120. I'm like, damn. He's like, so I'm going to take you on two jobs and you're just going to wear, you got a tie. I'll give you a tie. But if you don't, got, I, I got a tie. I can make this happen. You know, I was just fresh out of high school, so mm -hmm. I had a tie from when I worked at Pro X. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I go do two jobs, and then he gives me enough money to go buy a tuxedo. From there, I, I went and did more jobs with him. But now I was in a tux, so now with a tux, you get a raise. That was the whole point of getting the tuxedo. It's mm. like you get a tuxedo, I'll pay you even more because okay. now you look the part, so right, I can. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm out to weddings now. To weddings, yeah. So I would be with him out here doing these weddings, learning it, and then he put me on my own. 
then I turned to my brother Nate. I was like, you got a tie? Because you could be my helper. So me and Nate started going out and Nate would help with the gear. And then I'd be in front of these people talking about, you know, uh, it's time for the dollar dance or it's it's time for the bouquet toss. You know, I was mm. learning how to work an audience, crack mm. some jokes, play some Bob Seger, you know, make it all happen. And I turned to Hassan. I was like, how come we don't do any school dances? You know, why are we only doing uh, weddings? You know, he's like, well go out there and get some school dances. So I was like, all right. So I went to the schools and, and was like, hey, I want to I want to DJ your next dance, you know? And nobody called except South High. South High was like, hey, we'll book you for a couple of Crazy. school dances. Yeah. Crazy. So, and this is all pre-Rhyme Sayers. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? This was like 90, at this point, like 93. So at one of these school dances at South High, kids kids keep coming up because I'm playing a little hip hop. You know, back then you could, you would have to play all of the dance songs, you know, CC, Music Factory, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you could, coming out of CNC Music Factory, he raps at the end of that. And so you could play something, you know. So I would be able to sneak in a far side passing me by or sneak in a, not just your Busta Moves or or, right. or your, but, but, but you but could sneak in a, yes. Uh, that was Hyrule. still acceptable. I could sneak yeah. in Hyro. And, and kids would come up like, yo, you're playing this at my school dance, right? I'm like, yeah, let us rap. All right, come back. Last 10 minutes of the, mm. of the gig and, and I'll open up the mic. And they lost their minds. They wanted to rap. And I'm like, yo, this is tight. And at that, at one of them South High things, that's how I met Unicus. Uh-huh. Because he rapped. And, and he was good. Like, yeah. yeah. Man. Unicus is ill. And uh, I Unicus met Unicus was ill early. It's funny. I met a few of the the dudes that later on developed and became part of the scene Mm -hmm. but unicus is the one that i'm going to specifically mention now because we stayed in kind of a light contact with each other and unicus was like yo you should come over because we kick it and freestyle at this house over in saint paul i was like all right bet and i'm thinking to myself do i really want to go and hang out with a bunch of high schoolers at a house and rap because at this point i was like yeah i was like 23 and i was like at this point, and, and I was like, you know what, I, I do. And I don't think I was 23. I think I was about 22, maybe. Uh, it's like, let me go over here. I went into this crib, and I was like, man, there ain't no parents here at all. I mean, I don't think anybody lives here. <laughs> I think kids live like in this house. there have never been parents mm-hmm. here. <laughs> right off of Pascal and University, man, over kind of over by the Cheapos. Mm. And it was Musab's house. <clears throat> and that's how I met Musab. And me and him became friends. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh... Just because rapping was fun and and smoking weed, we smoke weed and rap, and that's literally what, for hours. That's what these fools would do over there. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And and that's how me and him became friends. And then he and me started. You know, he he was part of Labyrinth at the time. He wasn't beyond yet. Mm-hmm. He was he well, he might have been beyond in the group Labyrinth, but he was part of Labyrinth. And one time he was like, "Yo, I'm making I'm making some solo music, and I want you to come over and get on one of these songs." I was like, "All right, bet." So. I went over there and we made a song called Unaligned Sperms. And he was like, yo, I need a hook for this. You want to do a hook? And that's when I, I wrote the hook for Black Culture and did that. And the I first, loved the first day. First time hanging out at Ant's. So this is the first time I met Ant. Like he, Musab was like, I want you to come over and make some songs. He gave me the, the address to, you know, this is before cell phones. You know what I'm saying? So we're on the phone. He, he gives me the address to the studio he works out of. And I'm just like, whoa, I got to go to a studio. You know, every time I've ever been in a studio, it's been a bad experience because you spend too much time getting nothing done you know what i mean like all right okay yeah whatever man i i I got this let me go over here and do this i go over to a studio and i got some verses written for unaligned sperms and it's basically just rapping about rapping rap i'm I'm cooler than you i'm better than you whatever uh 
but also, you know, we didn't have a name for it yet. And I approached it kind of like gross. You know, I say a lot of gross stuff in that song. Like some of the the one-liners are shock value kind of things, you know. Um, And that's what I met Ant. Mm. And I remember like being like, man, who is this? I thought he was Native American when I met him. Because it was in the, I mean, it was in the. He lived in like. He lived in Little Earth. Yeah. Yeah. The project. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Like people don't know that there's like a full, and that's res land, mm -hmm. but it's also a project. And it's an urban reservation. It's one of very few in America. So he lived in he he, he lived in Little Earth, and so when I got there, it, it just was it wasn't even a thought. It was like, oh, yeah, this yeah. native dude is making these beats. <laughs> this is tight to, to me. I was just like, yo, because every native dude I'd known weren't they weren't even into rap mostly, man. Most of the mm -hmm. native friends that I had were like rock dudes. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It was like metal and, and rock and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And and so I was just like, yo. This is what's up. I like this guy. You know what I mean? And then as the night went on, I was like, this dude ain't native. He's in the mafia. This dude is like Italian. I'm like, well, I'm trying to figure out who is this guy. But, but, he was like full ponytail leather jacket. Full ponytail. And, and when I first met him, it was just ponytail white shirt, mm. uh, like short sleeve polo. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, But by the end of the night, I think he was getting ready to go out or something. And that's when the leather jacket came on. And that's when he transformed. He put from, like a sweater on. Yeah. yeah he went from Slacks. Being a native dude to being an Italian dude. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but being, me and Saab made unaligned sperms over a really slow beat. And I remember it being like, man, this is super dark and hardcore. And it's the last thing I was expecting because the music I'd heard Saab do with Labyrinth was more kind of upbeat, you know, uh, kind of happier, kind of like what what eventually the sound that Cancer had was uh, Cancer, a uh, group from Minneapolis um, back in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 90s and, and 2000s. They were kind of, had an upbeat, very traditional kind of b-boy hip-hop type stuff mm -hmm. that's kind of what labyrinth had too so when when they were playing these darker beats i was just like yo this is like this is, this is for me this is for me this is yeah, like this is man. cypress hill meets mob deep that's how i seen it you know what mm -hmm. i mean like i was like this is hard and so we made that song and then Saab was like i want you to do a hook can you do a hook i was like yeah i was like what's the song called he's like black culture you want me to do the hook for that yeah all right <laughs> hey, cool and that's when i wrote the life love stress setbacks yeah. which at the time, I loved again same 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 kind of feeling where I was like, "Yo, like I was proud that there was a native dude making these beats. Mm. It gave me a sense of like, this is dope. This is connected. This is what I'm talking about." And then I was proud to be asked to be on a song called Black Culture. I was mm -hmm. like, "This is dope. This is what I'm talking about. This is the type of connection I want with Musab. This is the friend I want. And, and and from there, me and him kind of became really good friends. You know what I'm saying? And and from there, me and Ant also started to become good friends. And I turned to, uh, I was working with Spawn at the time. We were making our own beats. And I was like, yo, I just met this dude. He's the guy that makes these beats for, for Musab. He's dope, you know. Sadiq had met both of them. And, you know, Rhyme Sears was already kind of getting going a little bit. Um, we You know, us and, and Full Circle and the Abstract Pack. And everybody was kind of like, we were headshots at the time. And Musab was rapping under the name Beyond at the time. And I remember there being like this headshots meeting, like like almost like what you think of as a gang meeting in a movie. You know what I mean? Where it's like mm. this meeting, like do we Can put- Can you dig it? Do we put Musab down with headshots? And it was like this, you know, and everybody unanimously was like, yes, this dude is dope. Well, Musab had a full album done. Mm. And and it was like, well, not only did he just join headshots and rhyme series, but now he's about to be the first project, even though there's other people who've been running with us for, longer and so it was weird it, it made it made things kind of like 
I don't know what, I don't know how to call it, but it just, it made things kind of awkward because I understood how some people may have felt like, yo, we've been putting in hella work and we don't want to just get overlooked to build this thing and to, to build, build the reputation thing, of and it then have and the new it. guy come in and mm-hmm. surpass all of us. But I also understood the other side of it, which was, look, none of us are anywhere near having a complete album. So do you want us to shelf this dude's shit mm-hmm. while we wait for one of us? Because to... you got seniority. Exactly. <laughs> I was so I was all about like, yo, let's let's make this happen. Let's put this dude's album out because it's ready. It was it was ready and it was dope. And 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 that was that was and I feel like. Ant and Musab, seeing how supportive I was of that, mm-hmm. made them, you know, it, it just certain levels of trust that you have to get through, just regular friendship trust, but also in this culture, in this music specifically, in in whatever you think the industry is, in your city, all of the weird little politics and all those things, like we broke through a lot of them very fast because I think I saw how much they trusted me out the gate and they saw how much I trusted them out the gate. You know what I mean? And so um and and and, and so we yeah, we became really fast friends. And and it wasn't long before I convinced Spawn we should quit making our own beats and only work with this dude because you know, me and Spawn, we'd make songs, and they were good, but we'd make three songs a year. We were making three songs an hour with Ant. You know what right, I'm saying? It was right. like there was something about his music and the way he spoke to us and coached us that had us finishing a song and then sitting down to start writing the next one. Mm-hmm. Just like that. You know what I mean? Like, it was it was dope. We're brought to you by the Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T. Zakat is the pillar in the in the Islamic tradition that deals with giving, with charitable giving, with giving back, with sharing. Uh, what the Muslims believe is that, you know, we try to do our best so that our income is from sources that we feel good about. We want to be people of integrity. And so we want to, to be benefiting from things that are good for everybody. We don't want to earn money from things that are harmful to people. And so that's our desire. But the, just the nature of money, the nature of business is such that things get mixed. It gets a little muddy. There's a lot of gray area when you're dealing with this stuff, as there is in most things in, in this life that we're living in. And so giving back is one of the ways that we purify our provisions. And so that's what Zakat Foundation is about. It's really important to me to note that Zakat Foundation, it's an Islamic-led, it's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims and they don't proselytize. Something really interesting happened that really uh, just re-upped my my feeling of of love and gratitude for Zakat Foundation and my respect and admiration for them. You know, when the situation in Ukraine happened, Zakat Foundation started in the month of Ramadan uh, raising money to support them. And there was a f- section of the Muslim community that wasn't happy about that because Muslims have a difficult history in that part of the world. And I'm not going to go all into it, but Muslims feel wronged and in many cases have been wronged in the Ukraine. There's also the reality that there's a huge double standard 
we when we talk about these types of tragedies and these types of catastrophes and these crimes against humanity that you know when the victims or the people that are going through these things when they're white there there's this huge outcry this moral outrage and this outpouring of support for them but when they're not white it's very very different and one of the ways that muslims especially live with this reality every single day is in Palestine. I mean, during the month of Ramadan, the Israeli government attacked one of our holiest sites during the month of Ramadan, a mosque, Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock. And I mean, people were in there worshiping, elders and children and women and, you know, people in there worshiping. And they came in with stun grenades and uh, metal bullets with rubber casings and shooting people and beating people. And, you know, year in and year out, these are the things that Palestine is experiencing. But the outcry is just not there. You know, the care and the concern just isn't there. And so there were some Muslims that were upset with Zakat Foundation when they supported Ukraine. But the Zakat Foundation said, we are called, we're duty bound that when human beings are in need, we step in for that, in those needs. Yes, there's a double standard. Yes, there's a difficult history with Muslims in the Ukraine. The reality though, regardless of any of that, is that our job and our responsibility and our honor and our joy is to help human beings when they need help. These are human beings that have human needs and we're here to help and support them. So. Uh, follow Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T dot U-S. Um, you can follow them on social media. Zakat Foundation uh, website is also there. They do incredible stuff all over the world. And so in terms of an organization to give back, also another thing that's really dope about them is that in all of the areas where they operate, they have people and partners on the ground that are of the people that they're helping to make sure that it's it's quality control is there and that it's done in a dignified way. So we're really happy and grateful on the Travelers Podcast to be partnering with the Zakat Foundation. And we invite you, encourage you to check them out and support when you can in a way that speaks to you. So grateful to be having this conversation and sharing this conversation with my man Slug from Atmosphere. And, you know, so much of our relationship is that he's been a person that has led the way and charted the course for himself and inspired a lot of us with how to be an independent artist and an independent creator and an independent voice and an independent contributor to what's going on in culture and in the world. And that's extremely important to us. And what's absolutely necessary in that is that we have a direct connection with the people that support us and that we really invest in it and foster it. So following us on social media is super dope. On Instagram, I'm Brother Ali is blind. I call myself that on there because of the fact I'm partially blind. So if the stuff that I post is out of focus or if, if it doesn't quite look right, I just want you to know, like, I can't see that stuff. So I'm doing my best. <clears throat> and then I'm Brother Ali on the other platforms. But, and all that stuff is great and people follow and engage there. But it's really important that we not also be controlled by those corporations that run those platforms. So I'm asking you head to brotherali.com. There's a mailing list there that you can sign. 
I do not spam. Like I only send stuff out a few times a year, just giving you the broad strokes of what we're doing. But, you know, we had a, we just wrapped up the West Coast leg of the Traveler's Tour. And I hear from a lot of people on social media, yo, I didn't even know you were on tour. And I'm promoting it every single day, posting tour dates and updates and pictures and videos and all kind of stuff from the tour. It's like, yo, I don't want to wear out the people that follow us either. With like, dude, I've been hearing about this tour for three months. But if we don't do that, then people hit us up. Yo, when are you coming to, you know, when are, when are you coming to, to uh, Santa Cruz? Yo, I was just in Santa Cruz. Oh man, I didn't even know, you know. So the best thing to do is to head to brotherali.com, sign up for the mailing list. But I also want to just make you aware that we do have new dates coming out all the time. Also, the updates with regard to the podcast are there. Also, we started releasing new music. Uh, and so we have two new singles that we released recently. The first one is called Going Through It, which is produced by me and Ant from Atmosphere Together. Uh, we produced it together. And that's getting a huge response on the uh, on the streaming services and what have you. And then the other song is called More Than This, which is really a song about the idea of like consumption and consumerism and uh, materialism and how the pandemic really made us rethink all of that. You know what I mean? I say, they don't knock no more. I mean, my friends, it's just me and this cardboard. I can't see my garage floor. I'm feeling, feeling out of sorts. I shop some more, you know? And so these songs have been really well received, but it's interesting because we, when we were on tour and we would do the new songs, the people at the shows didn't even know that these new songs were out. But then there's like tens of thousands of streams. We got 100,000 streams on these songs. So there's people listening to it you know, but it's really strange trying to, 20 years in, make sure that the people that are with us understand the fullness of what we're offering. And so, I, and then there are people that are at the VIP even of the show. And I'm thinking these are the people that really follow. And I'm like, yo, did you hear the episode of the podcast with Cornell West or Chuck D? And people are like, yo, you got a podcast? Yes, I have a podcast. So, we invite you to head to, and, and uh, with regard to the music, we're putting out, we've got a third song coming and also a really cool announcement about that body of work. And the first people to hear about it will be people that are part of the mailing list. So head to brotherali.com, hit up the mailing list. You go to the events section, you see all of our events. You go to the podcast section, you get updates there. Um, if you go to the about section, you can see my bio and also a bunch of videos about the stuff that we've done, all sorts of things that have been published about me. Uh, you can watch all kind of old interviews and documentaries and freestyle sessions and all kind of stuff like that. And then the section that we have called join um, is what we call our caravan, which basically allows people to come together and really be an active part of what we're doing. But it also creates community around that. One of the ways is that we have a Slack channel. I love doing voice notes. And so we've got these like top tier supporters that are really building a community. And these are people that would not know each other if it wasn't for this. And people that are really, as time goes on, are really sharing major aspects of their lives and learning from each other. You know, and I don't want to put anybody's business out on the street, but I mean, trust me when I tell you these are people that would not be sharing this level of intimacy in reflecting about life together. So head to brotherali.com, check out all the stuff that we got, and thank you for rocking with us. I was in this weird disillusioned place with hip hop in the late 90s. 
and I was married and I was an imam at the mosque and I worked at UPS and like I was like I'm just like man this hip hop thing might be might have passed me by you know what I'm saying because I was already a, you know an old man at 19 or something and a friend of mine that I worked at UPS with was from Gary he was the guy that would go get all the tapes and make mixtapes for everybody and he gave me a tape and he was like man I'm going to change your your whole feeling about this so on the A side was a moment of truth by gangstar like that album had just dropped and i hadn't heard it hadn't bought it but the b-side was a was uh songs from uh B, um comparison and also from uh overcast and so it was like those two and so it was a very similar thing where like obviously that moment of truth album was like oh my god and then maybe about a week later i finally flipped it over and got to the other side and he was like yeah bro these dudes are from minnesota man but he was like they're all tall <laughs> that was one of the, that was the first thing i heard man, man bro they're all tall man and i remember thinking like the atmosphere stuff specifically i'm like this these dudes it sounds like hieroglyphics meets uh mob deep sure that was a feeling that i had it was like mob deep beats hieroglyphics rhyming i mean that's what we were trying to be like yeah. that, that is 100 percent. like you know i don't know i can't speak for anthony um but i can speak for myself but that is what i wanted you know to me mob deep sound specifically but even their rhyming i mean you know how i feel about prodigy you know what i'm saying it's like even their rhyming to me uh i, I loved it i loved mob deep and i loved hyro and so to me you you describing overcast as that sound is the best thing anybody could ever say to me about overcast <laughs> and it's crazy because when when like prodigy in his book like obviously we both like lo love that book and if you get the audio oh book, my it's God. like you never need another book no nope. like that can be i your mean only. that was my favorite album of the year that year <laughs> Prodigy, yeah. Prodigy's yeah, audio book was like the one thing I listened to the most that year. <laughs> oh, man. And you can put it on at any point. It doesn't need to be chronological. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, a great TV show. Like any section of that book, you can literally drop the needle on it. But he says that uh, he had multiple partners and different. And he was like, man, you know, I, I, they were saying that they had a DJ at one point And like, dude was too tall. Like he just didn't match the group. You know what I'm saying? Because him and, him and Havoc are like not tall let's say it like that and then when they found alchemist it was like yeah man he's dope he's the right size he's got the right you know what i'm saying <laughs> but there's something about like the about you know obviously with with saab being so connected with the, with the work ethic and things but something about you and anthony that is just really incredible when you think about the fact that you guys look like you belong together you know what I mean? And your work ethic and your way of talking. I never forget the first time I, I went over there and you guys were working. And this is after probably two years of listening to your music. And I just sat there and it was amazing to watch because you guys had your own language. You had your own shorthand. And you both just made each other laugh the whole time. Like I remember saying it was almost kind of like this weird kind of like mixed dude Beavis and Butthead. We're just like, <laughs> the whole time like these dudes are laughing. I have no idea what they're even saying to each other. And I sat there and one night, it was probably a five hour session and you all made three songs. We made one song together because I brought one verse with me and then y'all made three songs and I'd never seen that happened before and just the how amazing it is that you all found each other with ant having moved all over the world and ending up back in minneapolis that's a huge part of our relationship i think is that the two of us have 
so much in common, like things that we, you know, things from our childhoods, things from our early years that when we met and learned about all these commonalities that we had, it was like, oh, so that's a connection. the other side of this locket? (laughs) Kind of, that's how it felt. That was the connection. But then there are so many differences that Mm -hmm. we never stop learning new things about each other, you know? And so it's like, I mean, to this day, if me and him sat down and and talked for 30 minutes, one of us is going to walk away like, I never even knew that. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a, there's a consistent, there's, there's a, it's, 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 I, I really do think it's the perfect chemistry for a friendship. You know, and the other thing too that I really love about it is like we could go two weeks without even talking to each other, and it doesn't matter. The next time we talk, it's just like we talked yesterday. You know, I mean, we've gone months without seeing each other before, and the minute we're together, it don't matter. It picks up just like it was yesterday was the last time we seen each other. You know, and I think a big part of that is again, there's the perfect amount of commonality, and then the perfect amount of differences to make this like a really great working relationship you know and i think that you know one of the things is uh, I'm, i apologize to the audio if you can hear my stomach it's not because i'm hungry it's just because my stomach is like that um i i, I look at like uh other friends of ours mm-hmm. and, and and i'm i'm like it's getting harder and harder to find people who've been together for this long it's i don't think it exists I mean, there's got to, you know, I always would use Premier and Guru as the example, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I'm not allowed to use that example anymore, but then, you know, I, I just look at like who, who is still been together for this long, you know, Souls of Mischief have been together for this long, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, and I'm sure I could, I could dig and find more, but also we don't know about the trials and tribulations that any of these groups have gone through. Nobody knows about any trials and tribulations that Atmosphere may have gone through, but no matter what, it's the perseverance, it's the resilience, it's the fact that, you know, we still have, and our visions are not always the same. You know what Mm. I'm saying? Like we still have different visions because we have to take in and consider different things. You know what I'm saying? It's like uh, a lot of my vision uh, as of late has been tour oriented, and a lot of his vision is is project oriented, you know. But then we switch shoes sometimes, you mm-hmm. know. When we get to a certain part of the project, I get very project vision, and he gets very tour vision. You know what I mean? And so it's like we're able to. It's not like I know how to do this, you know how to do that. Let's put it together. We have a Reese's peanut butter cup. It's like we we both are the full packages already on our own, mm-hmm. you know. And but yes. then when you bring us together, right. It, it creates a whole different... It was like the the Venn diagram joke I made with you yesterday. Like mm-hmm. when we get together, our Venn diagram is almost exactly the same color as it was when we were separate. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like blue and blue. Yeah, it's blue, you know? But but it's... it's 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 uh, it's uh I'm very grateful. It's a very special, special friendship. And you know what you're saying about you still finding new things about each other makes a lot of sense because in your creative journey together, like, man... I remember one one time it was a uh, an article that came out where Questlove mentioned y'all. We're the, little, said, the little engine that could. He said atmosphere is the little engine that could. He was like, man, nobody's listening to them. I don't think people know that we have an audience. He's like, nobody even listens to these dudes, man. And he's like, they make a new dope record every year, and it never sounds like the record before it. Like you have changed. Like you basically, what I've always felt is like atmosphere is a world that the two of you create together. Whether you're on tour and you go to the show, like you enter into a world that you all 
have been creating for 20 plus years, 30 years maybe, coming up on 30 years. And, you know, and each album is like a different, the same way the world changes, like that, the, those, those, those feelings and those tones and those things change. And it's one of the things that not only you all being together so long, but having completely changed your sound so many times. There may be groupings of albums that you could say that, um, you know, I would say maybe the the seven tape, the seven tape, and Lucy Ford. You know what I mean? Like those have sure. kind of a sound, and maybe uh, God Loves Ugly and Seven's Travels are flip sides of the same coin. One is dark, and Seven's Travels is bright. But they're those were all made in that same period of yep. time. Yep. And then there are some, you know, in the band days that you could say were similar. And then there's like the G Coop years. You know what I mean? But each of those are different. But the entire sound, and then you have Lemons in the middle of it. It's like, man, this was just like an 80s electro pop band for, for an album. You know what I'm saying? I like to group Lemons with the Sad Clown series, mm -hmm. nine, 9 through 12, mm. um, because some of the same intention was put into those. Uh, but to me, I always look at these things. I never can tell if the listener can recognize the differences in these albums. I always am concerned that, um, that people are like, oh, Atmosphere? They're going to make the same album again. Because in my mind, we have a couple of traditional songs. And every album is going to have something that fits into one of those kind of traditional songs. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and that's nothing other than the fact that I love those songs. And I'm trying to someday write the perfect version of that song. And, and, mm. and every time you hear one of those atmosphere traditionals, it's just me taking another step towards trying to figure out how to write that perfect, you know, but you could look at a song like Yesterday and mm -hmm. it fits in there. It, technically, it's probably the the more piano joints. When Ant gives me a piano, I usually go, okay, how do I Billy Joel this? You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> like, how, what am I, how am I, I want to make the traditional song that has a little humor, tugs on the heart a little bit and and has closure or has some sort of uh i guess you you would say um uh closure that's probably the best word i could put on that you know where where, where by the end of the song it's not left unspoken i said what i said i said the one line that i really the whole reason for this song to exist is because there's this one thing i needed to say man the 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 song flicker about mikey I remember, I'll never forget, you came to my house and you were like, <laughs> you came and I, I came out and got in the car and I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know, like, are we going to go somewhere? Like, and you were just like, hey, I'm out front. I don't think, I, don't think I, I knew you were coming. I was like, all right, let me put my coat on. I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> I'm watching you. <laughs> don't feed that to your children. Uh, but man, I came, got in the car and you're like, I should. So we talked for a little bit and I, it got quiet. I'm like, okay, so what are we doing? You're like, I got to play you something. And you're like, it's a song about Mikey. And I don't want to talk about it. I just want to play it for you. And I was like, right. You turned it on. And the second it started playing, you know me, like I'm always crying. I was just like, duh. Like just, I didn't even hear a word. But man, that song, when you talk about the way that it ends specifically, but like that song really perfectly encapsulates what it was like and what it is still like to have lost him and the 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 kind of like roller coaster of emotions of missing him and how complex it all was. You know what I mean? You're talking about, uh, you know, just the, just the, everything from, you know, trying to rationalize it and trying to understand it and trying to put it in a place where, where you can think about it. And then also just, you know, the moments of like, I want to help my friend. 
You know what I mean? But then the way that you ended it was so perfect about just, you know, talking about, man, if you were here, you would have dissed this song. You would have did this whole song would have just sucked to you. Yep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You'd hate this chorus. You tell me the concept was too straightforward. And that's what it was like. And that's what it's still like for me. Mm -hmm. Like there's all these things where it's just like every now and then you remember that like he's not here. But then you also remember all the freaking arguments you had with this dude. You know, I think about him often when I'm making music actually because I I've 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 now kind of embraced and reconciled the fact that I will likely from a creative space I will live in the shadow that he cast forever like his his he was so big to me and that it it was such a large we'll say monument that he was is he still is and i will always i will always kind of dwell in that shadow a little bit you know once in a while i might be able to step out and find some sun but there will always be this thing of like what would mikey say right here what would he do and it's i can't i can't compete i can't live up to it i know that but it, it doesn't stop it doesn't stop me from creating but it doesn't stop giving me this feeling of he wouldn't like this song you know what i'm saying it's like this song ah how can i how can i make this i need to give this more layers of you know what i mean and, and it's a good thing because it pushes me and it pushes me and as of late specifically um it's definitely pushed me into this space of caring less and less and less about whether or not the listener is going to be be able to unwrap what I'm talking about and more so what can I do to make sure the listener still listens even if they're not following exactly what I'm talking about you know but it it, it it's like it's still evolving it's still evolving you know um the relationship with him the relationship with him it's still growing it's still yeah it's still it's still and when those people that are like mountains of meaning when they die you know, writers never die. Trying to write a song about a dead songwriter who wrote his own songs about life and death. Like when those people die in their physical, it's almost, a, it, it, not almost, it is the reality that who they really are is more present than ever before. Because the him that's there complaining and joking about stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like that guy isn't there anymore. But the meaning of who he is, is, is all that there is now. So it's like the signal is more pure than ever. And the relationship continues to grow. And I love the fact that you ended it both with the fact that he would diss the song, because he absolutely would. He'd be like, oh, yeah, great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah, dead. I'm dead. Great. And you got a nice little hit out of it. Yeah. Have fun performing that for white girl. Yeah. Like, he'd have some snarky ass, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. just something to make you just sit with the fact that, like, I would have made this way more, in I would have had way more artistic integrity with yeah, this yeah, than yeah, yeah. you ever would. But then also the fact that no matter how sad a person that knows him and loves him gets, you will always, you cannot think of him long enough without dying of laughter. Because yeah. he was so hilarious yeah. in everything that he did. And then that always, for me, that always brings me back to just gratitude. You know what I'm saying? That yeah. like, man. You know, a thing with him, and he's kind of the one that, like I learned it from other artists first when they passed away early, um, but when I try to apply it to him, it gets it, it's a little bit more complex. But like, you know, we look at we 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 put people on a pedestal 
when they pass because we think about the contributions that they weren't able to continue to give to us, you know, and that, and that, I mean, that's Bob Marley, you know, Biggie, Pac, um, and then Mikey. But the thing with Mikey was like, it was so close that it wasn't this idolistic kind of a thing. It wasn't this pedestal as right. much as it was like, yo, this is like, it was almost like losing a limb or losing one of a piece of yourself is now gone and you're not going to be able to you know catch a ball with both hands anymore you got to figure out how to catch a ball with one hand now um the thing that because i used to i used to look at it like oh well you know biggie passed away and now we all idolize him but i'm kind of looking at the other side of it too because i'm you know i'm an asshole and i look at the other side and go yeah but he passed away before he had the chance to suck Mm-hmm. He 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 dipped before he had the chance to like and fall off. On life after death is kind of like which direction is this going in? You know, and and so I, I and so but when when Mikey passed, it allowed me to finally stop thinking like that and be like, yo, man, he was somebody's right arm. He was not just people close to him, but like he was the right arm to people who didn't even know him. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And and when I look at it through that lens, it 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 really kind of like opens up what that really means when when a truly great artist dies because it's not just like oh that's sad but it's like yo like this person influenced and touched people's lives and helped people through really difficult times and it's not to say that the music that they created while they're here can't still do that but like it's over now and there's not going to be you know more you know what I'm saying? Like, and that's and that's the part now that I look at. And I, I would just rather go ahead and let people live long enough to fall the fuck off. You know what I'm saying? It's like I, I feel I, I, every time now when an artist passes, even when they're older, like I really try to take a second to like take it in and understand. You know, and we've had so many as of late, not just in hip hop, but just in general. You know, yeah. and, and 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 so I just really try to 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 take in that side of it, even outside of their art, even if I wasn't a fan of their art. What was this person to the people who did love this person and cherish this person? You know, and 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 Mikey's passing taught me that. It allowed me to see that, and I feel like that was a really that was one of the more important things that Mikey taught me. And you know, he wasn't even trying to teach me that. You feel me? It's like that's just something that he accidentally taught me. You know, it's interesting. Like we've known, I've known multiple legends who have passed. Like, I didn't talk to Doom every day. But, like, when I saw Doom, we had really beautiful moments. And there maybe were only five of them. But we had, like, really... I saw him in South Africa a few years before he died. And he was like, yo, he was like... Come, he would always have me come to his hotel room. And there's this line that he says in one of his joints where he says, Doom is nervous large. You can tell by his blooming room service charge. <laughs> and, like, all the times that I was with him and we were traveling... He would, uh, there was a time where he called me one time at three in the morning and I just, on the hotel phone. Cause, and I, I'm like, why is he calling me on the hotel phone? I answered him, he just goes, 412. I was like, all right. So I guess I'm going to <laughs> go to Doom's room. And like, he's like, he's watching either Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. My, my wife will kill me because I don't know the difference. But sure. He's watching one of those <coughs> and there's just trays everywhere where dude ordered everything on the menu. And he's like, man, eat something, watch a movie with the God. <laughs> <laughs> but and then we were in South Africa 
And we were staying in the same hotel playing at Cape Town Jazz Fest. I think you played it the year before. I always get to do stuff like right after you do it. Like, I, like when you do it, it opens the door for me to do it. And so uh, he was like, he was like, you know, 718. It's like, it's like, you know, and I remember that was his room because that was the, the area code, one of the area codes in New York, 718 in Brooklyn. So I was like, word. So I go to the room and there's stuff all over the place. And I'm like, what have you been doing since you've been in Africa? Because like we got to be there for like a week. Yeah. And he's like, man, I just keep looking out this window. He's like, he hadn't gone out of the hotel at all. And he's just like, man, but I opened the the the, the window and like, I'm breathing in Africa. He's like, we're in Africa, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like we've known these like legendary people, Sean Price, you know what I mean? Tour of Sean Price. And when they're gone, it always makes me think about the legends that I never knew. Mm. It always makes me think about like as much as I love Malcolm, as much as I love James Baldwin and Nina Simone, like what was it like to have actually been in their lives? You know, because having lost Mikey is like losing one of those people, whether yeah. the, whether everybody understands that or not. It's one of those really amazing, those amazing things. You know, um, I mentioned this a little bit yesterday. I felt like I was with you during the time when it felt like the music industry was trying to see if they could use you or not. And there's a line that you had, maybe on Lucy Ford, I never want to blow up because I never want to fall off. And like I saw those things happening. Like I saw MTV really feeling like like they were almost courting you and like rock radio. And there was a story of you and Anthony going out for lunch with Rick Rubin and him. Did he offer to produce an Atmosphere record? Uh, Rick, I wouldn't say he offered it. He was showing interest in us in a way that became you know he he broke the wall and had us over he had me over to his house once mm. um he was very interested I, I sat at his house and i played him the full four track demo version of you can't imagine how much fun we're having Crazy. um and it's it's here's here's what happened man on on the sevens travels tour you were with us mm -hmm. we got to la and played the henry fonda I remember I had a velour, suit. it was Puma, velour, oh, Puma, Puma, black and red. Yeah, that was a dope. I remember when you got that, I was like, oh, all right, okay, all right, <laughs> I see you. You're on MTV now. All uh, right, nah, you starting it, to look like a rapper? I just like because it was velour. I was like, oh, this looks like some nah, Yeah, and then the old, next day you were back in skate shoes yeah, yeah, and white tees yeah. again. Um, but after the show, I was downstairs, fully sweaty, and I was I was backstage with 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 dibs mr dibs and bird comes in the room and he's like hey uh rick rubin is here and he would like to come say hi and me and dibs are both like yeah come in and you know and he was like you know he kind of dresses like a shaman or something like he's got like a white gown on and it looks like he's floating it doesn't even look like he's walking he just like floats into the room and he's smiling you know and he's just like hey you know nice show and i was just like yo you're Rick Rubin, you know, and I said some very embarrassing things, not like I stumbled over my own thoughts and words because I was so nervous to be in front of this person. Did you say something about Paul's Boutique? I did. I was like, we were just listening to Paul's Boutique yesterday. He, didn't, he did not do Paul's Boutique. That's no, the he didn't do that record. <laughs> uh, he did Paul Revere and I really meant Paul Revere. Uh -huh. And I just, but I, but I called it Paul's Boutique because I was, I was just that nervous and he didn't 
flinched. He just was smiled and shook his head yes. And I was like, anyway, thank you for coming, whatever. He was like, that was a really good show. You know, a lot of good energy in the room, you know. And I was assuming he was probably responding to the Mr. Dibbs stuff at this point because I know that much of Rick Rubin's career at this point had gone into like the more harder rock stuff. Um, also, I was friends with a band called American Head Charge, and he had produced some of their stuff. And I had actually, I had actually been to the Head Charge Manor, which I believe he may have owned the building. So I'd been in one of his buildings and and spent the night there and and and, and kicked it and partied with these guys in one of his houses. You know what I mean? Like, um, or maybe it wasn't his building. I mean, I, I don't know. It's all kind of blurry. But nonetheless, I felt like I already was connected to this gentleman, even though I was still super nervous. I was a fan. All this. So shortly after, he was like, the next time you're in L.A., I want you to come to the to to my house and and let's talk. And I was like, OK, so I showed up with a the a burnt CD of um, the You Can't Imagine. And he sat there and he smiled through the whole thing and listened. But I don't think he liked it. Or, you know, maybe I talked too much because I would be like, oh, and this song is about this. And, and, and you know, because I was I don't want to say I was really trying to sell this to him but i was definitely i wanted his validation mm -hmm. and not even on some like i want to work with you but i just wanted when i leave i want you to know that i really love what i do you know what i mean and um and i think that that came across you know what i'm saying uh i don't know if he liked the music but i think he liked me you know um and then he had me and aunt come to lunch again after that and we went and ate with him at uh some deli that he that he liked to go to i think i think it might have even been closed and he had it opened for mm. us like i don't even know because i remember we got there nobody else was in there and mm. i'm saying we're in like you know we're in west hollywood mm. during the middle not of the day Cantor's. was it Cantor's? no not Cantor's. Okay. oh that place is huge that would be amazing if yeah. he had Cantor's closed and no, it was like had it had yeah, it, yeah 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 no this is a smaller spot but also i if i remember correctly there was like nobody there and and i remember he i was the first time i ever seen a type of car that all the rappers were talking about. Um, Bentley? Mm. It's the first time I ever seen one. You know mm. what I mean? Like I'd never, you know, I wasn't paying attention to magazines and, and music videos, but I'd hear rappers talking about Bentleys. And so when I finally seen one, I was like, oh, it looks like a, a Rolls Royce. What is this? Like, this just looks like an old car. You know, like I, this is what, but I remember he had, he had a driver, you know, and, and his driver would get out and let him out and make sure he was safe going into the, into the restaurant. Me and Ant went in there and we ate, you know, French French dip onion sandwiches or whatever with, with the dude, you know? Um, but you know, it was Jeff that put all that together. Jeff that worked at Rhyme Sayers. Oh. He was working for Rick back That's then. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, for all of the like, wow, Rick Rubin is interested in this and that and the third and all these great feelings I got to have, I owe that to Jeff because really Jeff was the one that put all that together and made that possible. And, you know... So Jeff, if you were watching this, man, thank you for that. Cause that was a really, that was, that was important for me. Like that was a big, that was a big deal to me. You know, the, the, the feeling, and maybe I, cause I heard it from Anthony, but the impression that I always got and I, of that meeting was that he was interested in you and ants, ants takeaway from that. at least in the moment was he was deeply touched because Rick, it was kind of almost like, Am I going to help? Is Rick going to produce the next Atmosphere record? Or will he? And Ant really felt like you were very loyal to him in front of Rick Rubin in that moment. Mm. That he, his takeaway, at least what he told me at the time, was that he was like, man, we sat down at that table 
and it's me and Sean and Rick Rubin. And Rick Rubin is like, hey, I know what to do with atmosphere. And he felt like you said in that moment, Ant produces atmosphere. And oh, definitely. And, and that was a thing, but I never even considered any of this talk to be about taking me and putting me with other producers. Like that was never, like when I sat with him and played You Can't Imagine, that was me going, you see what we're doing? This is yeah. super good. Yeah. And when we sat with him in that in that lunch, it, w- it wasn't even a matter of feeling like, is Rick trying to tug a war of this or anything like that? Because to me, it was like, well, me, we're, me and Ann are sitting on this side of the table. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there, and it was, yeah. and I, and I don't, man. That kind of sounds like I'm saying it's you versus us. It wasn't even like that. It was really just some comfort talking. But my takeaway from it, and it's the best thing I could have taken away from this, is that, um, it was inspiring and it was encouraging for me that this dude even wanted to talk to us. Right. You know what I mean? Because I took that and I ran with that feeling. You know, because after you can't imagine came out. I was like unstoppable in the sense of my, my work ethic just got turned up a few notches. Which is crazy. You know, I went from, you know, making three songs on a on a given Sunday with to I started going to Ant's house every day. Mm. You know, because I was kind of like, this is tight. I it was more like I, I wasn't looking for Rick to actually put us on. I took what he did give me, which was that inspiration to know I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is the right thing. Period. And Aunt famously, his only contribution was, shit, I just wanted to say Rick, 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 Rick Rubin bought me lunch. <laughs> I really love partnering with people and institutions and services and businesses that I know and that I love and that are from our community. And I love introducing new things to people that I know that they don't know about. So the company that I want to talk about, and I say company, but it's like a collection of three people that really care deeply about what they're offering, is called Oodimentary. Uh, Oud, O-U-D, Oud is how it's pronounced, but you don't have to say Oud, you can say Oud, O-U-D. Oud is a particular type of wood. It's a tr- it's called aloes wood. It's a certain tree that grows in Cambodia and Thailand and you know in that region of the world. This wood gets infected with a fungus and it creates antibodies in the wood. It naturally uh, uh, lets out these antibodies to fight the fungus and to live. So these healing antibodies create a scent that is like nothing you have ever smelled. I'm saying I'm partially blind, so sound is really important to me and smell is really important to me. If I'm in a place like I can smell if there's like bad chicken in my neighbor's house, you know what I'm saying? Like my sense of smell is crazy. Um, And smell really, really matters to me. And I love scent. I love incense. I love scented oils. I love certain colognes and perfumes. And I love you know, uh, Sage and I love Palo Santo. You know, there are people that are starting to get into and starting to realize this ancient wisdom and reality that uh, especially burning natural things can, can do something to affect and impact the energy and the vibe and the tone of a space. 
is something that a lot of people do in their their sacred practice is is burn something to create scent and also wear certain scents so you know something like sage or palo santo have become really popular and understandably so and i i burn them as well um, I was gifted sage and taught how to burn it from uh, First Nations elders in the Twin Cities that that taught me this stuff. And and I use those things. And I also like Nag Champa and I also like all this stuff. But I'm telling you that aloes wood or oud is a scent that I had never smelled until about five, six years ago, maybe a little bit more now, maybe seven years ago when I was first exposed to it. It's something that in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, it's really popular, but there's a lot of fake oud out there and it's limited and uh, it's not easy to come by. Uh, Oudimentary was started by a group of people that I know who really genuinely love it and understand the healing properties, understand the what it does to the heart. It's, it's a scent that when, it's, when the wood is burned or when it's distilled and made into oil that you can wear on your body, it's it's one of the most like deep smells and there are different types that come from different regions. It's one of the smells that just affects and impacts the heart and soul and intention. It soaks into your clothes, your hair, your space. If you burn real oud in your space, you will come back and it will smell like that for days. It might smell like that for weeks. If you have real oud oil on your body and you put it on your on your on your wrist or behind your ear or something like that, you know, if you burn it in your in in, in the scent goes in your hair and in your clothes, you'll you'll will smell like this deep resounding smell for a long time. And it does a lot to impact a person's state and also their intention to keep us mindful of everything that's beautiful and good. So it also is, there's a spectrum. So uh, I wrote, I, I asked them to text me this stuff because Udimentary has a spectrum of stuff. They have a burnable called Kyoto Soul. Uh, that's a mixture of Oud and some other scent. And it comes in a powder. And you, you if you go to Udimentary.com, uh, you can see it's O-U-D-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com. You can go there and you can also follow them on social media. They have burners, these like beautiful handcrafted wooden burners, and you light a little charcoal and the charcoal ashes over. And then you can put either the wood or you can put uh, frankincense. They have medical grade frankincense. That's amazing. Nothing you have ever smelled like it. And they also have these mixtures, these like powders that you can put some people call it bukhur, but you put it on the coal and it just fumigates your space and uh, it makes your space smell amazing. So Kyoto Soul is one of the more affordable ones. They also uh, have different oils and different blends. There's one uh, called Purple Sky, which is also a blend. I haven't smelled Purple Sky. I've smelled Kyoto Soul. We burned a lot of Kyoto Soul in my house. Uh, medical grade frankincense. But also, uh, there's another one, um, you know, with with different notes, and they make different mixtures. Um, but man, <clears throat> the oil that there's an oil that they have, the Cambodia, the Cambodia oil, it's expensive. I'm not gonna lie to you. The wood, if you burn the wood or if you wear the oil, it's expensive. So maybe you might want to test the waters a little bit with the less expensive stuff. But once you get up to that Cambodia, the Thailand you know, the, these, these things, the Assam, 
It's really incredible. I wish I had a way to let you smell it. But everybody that I've shared it with, everybody that I've exposed to it, whether a person has a particular belief or practice or not, it's it's something that impacts the heart and it impacts the soul. And it's a form of self-care. It's also a form of community. Because when you burn these things and when you have these smells, smells are connected to memory in really powerful ways. And so for a lot of times for our gatherings, we burn certain woods and they're expensive, you know, but you burn a little piece of wood. And then the next time you burn that wood, you will immediately be flooded with these beautiful memories of the gatherings and the heart to heart conversations and things like that over a beautiful cup of coffee or tea or something like, you know, and uh, burning these woods and also wearing the oil. So head to udimentary.com. Trust me when I tell you that you get what you pay for and, um, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Very blessed and just honored and fortunate to be in connection and in community and and having this partnership with Resma Menekin. R-E-S-M-A-A is is, uh, his name. And also if you go to his website is R-E-S-M-A-A, Resma.com. Resma is a healer, a therapist who specializes in trauma. And he works with individuals based on that. And he also works with families. You know, my son and I actually saw Resma as our therapist. Um, Resma also deals a lot with, and he's a specialist in racialized trauma. And so he wrote a book a couple of years ago called My Grandmother's Hands. It was a New York Times bestseller. Resma's been on Oprah and Dr. Phil and The Breakfast Club and, you know, all of these amazing outlets because he's an incredible educator and writer and healer. Uh, and he's written a new book called The Quaking of America that I'm waiting for it to come out on audiobook, so I haven't read it yet. But if you head to resma.com, you can check out both of these books. Also, we recorded a conversation with Resma that will air, that we'll, we'll broadcast next week, inshallah, on this podcast. And it was an incredible conversation. It's like there's times where like we're talking as as uh, you know two people commenting. There's times where we're talking like friends, and there are times where it's very evident. I think that he is my therapist. There's times where we go into therapy mode, <laughs> and um, so it's a beautiful conversation. But couldn't recommend this stuff more. Resma is offering something to the conversation about where America is at specifically with the highly charged topic of race and the way that that racial realities live in our bodies in the form of trauma and the ways that we respond to each other and particularly around uh, you know bodies and people of color and of culture surviving what's happening. And for people in bodies that are European American or that would be called white, you know people that are tied to the dominant uh, culture, and the dominant group that really creating a, a culture, an anti-racist culture among white people, you know, and what that really would mean and what that really could look like and the healing that can happen for everybody involved. Head to resma.com, R-E-S-M-A-A.com and check out both My Grandmother's Hands and The Quaking of America. what the guy said to me on the airplane was like, you know, what all these underground independent artists say that they, they've decided to remain, to do it on their own terms. He's like atmosphere. It's true for them. And, you know, that's always the perception 
that I had. But the the thing that I wonder about is specifically, it feels as though you and I, I feel this way as well, that for all the work that we've done, it feels like we're not included or understood or um, even considered in the hip hop conversation. The one, the only, the only thing that I lament about that whole thing, you know, not that I, you know, not that I'm jealous of anybody else's thing, but I'm, I would like for the people that care about hip hop music more universally to even be aware of what we've done so that it could be considered. And with all of the amazing music that you've done and all of the things, all the subjects that you've touched, all the sounds that you've done, all of the amazing rhyming that you've done, um, you know, you've, you've approached subjects in a, in, a, in a manner that nobody else in the art form has done. Do you have this same feeling that I, I really carry it? You know what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm still out here at times trying to freestyle on Sway and trying to make sure Black Thought knows I'm ill and trying to... I don't see you look searching for that, but do you have that feeling that... Um, do you have this, this, this sense of wanting to be understood or recognized as part of the hip-hop genre? I don't know, man. I feel like... I don't know if I care anymore. I did... There was a time where I was like... You know, I wanted to be acknowledged. And I think that somewhere around, you know, like I don't want to make this corny, but somewhere around having my next batch of puppies, I kind of slowly got off that. I kind of slowly was like, okay. Rather than being concerned about, look, I got a pretty large record collection. I got a lot of albums. Mm -hmm. Lots of us do. But I go through my albums and I see a lot. I look at them and I see a lot of amazing, amazing people who made a lot of horrible decisions with their careers. And so when I think about what is the thing that really makes us make those bad decisions? It's always based in ego. The ego of like wanting more, I deserve more. Or the ego of like, you know, um, I want to be the, the, the one that everybody sees as the best. These things that are not even real, they're not even tangible, you know what I mean? And so I feel like I don't necessarily need that because I know it's based in things like ego, legacy. And, and I look at those words and try to break down what they really are to me. And, and man, legacy, I, I don't know if I care. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm living in the here and the now. And so 10 years after I'm gone, is it really going to be that important to me that what they say about well, you know, he was this and this. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't care. I'd rather make sure that I'm making choices that are somehow affecting what's closer to the present, what's closer to my heart. And a lot of that is based on family, friends, you know, seeing my friends smile, seeing my family healthy, smiling. Um, and so, I, like I said, I don't want it to seem corny because it's not like I'm trying to like be like, I have the way and I have the answer. I don't have the answer to what other people should do. But I just know that I feel pretty comfortable in what I'm attempting to do. And at this point, what I'm attempting to do 
you know, I made the joke last night and it really was a, a real thing that I turned to Ant. And I was like, we should probably call the next album. The next time we make this album, I promise it'll be better mm. because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write the perfect song eventually at some point. I want to write the perfect song. I don't need to be the best rapper. I don't need to be acknowledged for having a work ethic or for keeping it independent or because when you really climb inside of why I kept it independent, even a lot of that was based in ego or fear. A lot of fear. I heard um a podcast where most deaf quoted Nina Simone about what freedom is. And freedom is the lack of fear is what mm. she said. And that really struck me because I, I look at a lot of the fears that I've had specifically in my career and, and I realize they are all tied to freedom, period. And so even I don't want to blow up because I never want to fall off. That was a fear. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in control. Mm -hmm. And now I go, well, what, what, what was that fear of really? You know, now I'm like, well, here's really what I don't want. I don't want another human being to be responsible for my mistakes. And I don't want another human being to take credit for my successes. And I know that's, that's not possible. There's going to be humans out there that really helped you succeed. And there's going to be humans that helped you fail. But for the most part, I want to not only acknowledge, but I want to be accountable for my errors as well as the choices that I make that were good, you know? And I want to model that for these kids because the last thing I want is to raise a bunch of babies that blame other people for their shit. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I, I don't like excuses. I don't like, you know, it's, I saw, I saw a thing where Crondon, uh, amazing speaker. I love listening to him talk. Yeah, he, said, brother, no. he said, <laughs> he said, he was, Crondon's my real dad, by the way, he was talking about parenting, <laughs> man. And he said, uh, he said the the best thing you can do for your child is to ensure that they have no excuses to give. You know what I'm saying? I, and I'm paraphrasing him. This isn't exactly how he worded it, but it's what I took from it was he was just like you can't you can't leave uh you can't let your kids have you can't let them make excuses, man. You got to you got to have them take credit for their missteps and but also take credit for for the 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 bright choices they make. Give them props for them. You know what I'm saying? It's like and and that's also how I that's how I want to live because I have to live that way so I can model that. I've come to you often when I'm extremely frustrated, and one of the last times that we had one of those conversations, you said something to me that was one of the most empowering things. And you said it about yourself, but I took it as advice for me. You said nobody can hurt me. People can either help me or they can't but no other person can hurt me. Only I can hurt me. <laughs> I can hurt me. No one else can hurt me. They can either help me or they can't. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that hearing you talk about some of those decisions and the relationship with fear, it's amazing because, you know, as somebody who looks up to you in those moments, I never would have thought that. Like I never would have, until the, this moment you saying that, I always believed that you're, it, you know, we're all driven by, by something different. Um, you know, I want to be understood. I want to be validated. I want to connect. The highest probably is I want to connect. On the lowest level, I probably want to be validated and just paid attention to. And I've always seen 
yours as wanting to be able to create not only the music, and when I say create a world, I don't only mean with the music, but the environment that you create around yourself and around what you make. Um, you know, and people feel it when they come into a show. I was just, I was just, you know, uh, Toby and Wigway, they paint everything mint green. And uh, Maimouni Yusuf was telling me that she was opening for him and that their people go into the venue and lay paper down on the floor and they paint that paper mint green so that when the people walk in, it's like your entire world is literally colored by what he and his family bring to the situation. And that made me think about you and the, and the, the fact that or, or what I see and observe is you know, the, the desire to create a world around the music and, and, you know, the way that it's released and the way that it's, that it's, that it's understood, you know, but then also you, you've mentioned today and yesterday in these conversations that you're never quite clear about how the people are perceiving it. When I was touring you, with you for like a three or four album run, what I always heard from all of Atmosphere fans is like, I love the last three Atmosphere records and I hate this new one. You know what I mean? And then I would tour with you the following year and they'd be like, man, the last one, including the one that they hated last year, yeah. I love all mm -hmm. of those. And this dude is messing up now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We're a grower, not a shower. <laughs> That's, that, I've, I've embraced that part of mm. my relationship with the listener. Um, and I actually... Now that I understand it, I lean into it and I take, um, I, I, I almost take a, a artistic license to fuck with that now. Because now that I know that the next album is likely going to be, there's going to be pushback on it from the, from the real fans at first. But then once they allow themselves to like let it in, then there's and so now what it means to me is that well i do that's one thing that's just one less thing for me to think about or or worry about when i'm making music one what what is anybody going to think of this when i finally stopped worrying about what is anybody going to think of this that was a huge huge piece of this for me and that was right around also you can't imagine was when i finally was like oh wait Seven's Travels is whack, but you love God Loves Ugly, but they're the same album. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and, then, and then You Can't Imagine came out, and it was like, wait, y'all are hating on this? But this is way better than Seven's Travels. But you're telling me Seven's Travels is the one, and you're hating on this? That's when I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. You, you, like, I see what's happening here. And yeah. then when Lemons came out, suddenly You Can't Imagine. I wish they sounded like that. Why are they doing this? And then, and, and, and so now... You know that at that point I was like, "This is how it is," and and I started even cracking jokes about it in press. You know, when people would ask me about it, I would, I would be like, "Well, don't worry, nobody's gonna like this till next year." And now it's actually to me, it's it's like, man, that's tight to me because when I look at the artists that I've had that same exact relationship with, mm -hmm. Prince specifically, mm -hmm. um, like there there is nobody above Prince to me. So does that so 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 me knowing that every time he made an album I would I would always be skeptical of it till he made the next one. By the time the next one came out, I was like, why didn't you make one more like this? Like to me that is 
you letting me into your world for real, for real. This is not about hits. This is not about the quick visceral reaction to what I just presented in front of you. Mm-hmm. We don't make the record that you sit in the car on release day and play it and Ooh, bring that back. We don't make that record. We make the record that you're going to play once you get sick of that record that just came out on release day. You're going to play that all day today, but next week you're going to come back to mine. And that's 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 now what I realize is is what our strength is, you know? And I love it because it doesn't doesn't require a focus track or a video. It doesn't require a, a photo shoot. It doesn't require me being on the cover of Herb magazine or whatever. You know what I'm saying? All that requires of me and Anthony is that we make music that we enjoy making. And 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 people might not hear it and feel it at first, but if you give it some time to sink in, you'll realize that it's a part of the bigger story. And that is what our relationship with the audience is. It's a much bigger story. It's not, and don't get me wrong, it's probably people who are just like, oh, I like trying to find a balance because it's on Tony Hawk and I hear it and it, it amps me up. And there's people who are like, they like specific songs, but I'm talking spe- I'm talking more about the fan who's like, who knows the catalog, you know? Um, the fan that knows details about my personal life because of how well they know this catalog. And for those fans, like I, I understand and I embrace the fact that our records take a little getting used to when it comes out. But by the time I release the next record, you'll likely have that this one will likely have grown on you. You know what I mean? And that again, that kind of deals with that fear thing. Like I'm not afraid of that anymore. I am no longer afraid of people's reaction to the record. I'm not afraid uh, of being criticized. Like when people criticize it and talk shit about it, it does not sting. It doesn't get under my skin. I'm like, okay, you're making a valid point here. You know what I'm saying? Like I hear it and I'm able to read the criticism and see it with the open eyes of somebody who can go, okay, yep, I hear that. I see that. And I can see what you think by that, you know? Because that same critic, that same writer will praise this album in three years. They'll be like, oh, Mi Vida Local was actually the... Or they won't even say actually because that would be them admitting that they was wrong. You know what I'm saying? But don't matter. I don't need nobody to admit they were wrong. I don't need... I just need to not get fired. As long as I still got the job, as long as I, as long as you ain't told me to clean out my desk yet, man, we're good, you know. And what's that about, you know? Because it's not a job. The job is not being creative. I don't have a job as a creative. I don't even like when we call ourselves creatives. The job is getting on a stage and making sure you feel like you got your dollars worth for that ticket. The job is, that's the job. Everything else is, 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 I don't want to say hobby, but it's everything else is love. Everything else is like, I love to do this. And this is what I, I, I couldn't be happier doing anything else, spending my time on anything else. If I'm not with my kids, I'm trying to write. If I'm not with my kids, I'm listening to music. But the job is, getting together with Ant and Bill and coming up with what we're going to do for the live show and then making sure that I can find the focus and the vulnerability and that moment to be present in front of a group of people, you know, that's the job. And that's, and that's the part that I, I don't want to lose that job because that job enables me to have this other part of my life, which is fun, which is the, which is making music and hanging out with my friends. 
have a million things I want to ask, but I don't think there's anything that we could get to that would be better than that. <laughs> so I just, man, I really thank you, man. Right on, man. For coming for coming for this show and specifically, you know, there, there's there's stuff that that uh, that we know between us of of why you know how much it means for you to be here specifically this time. But um, yeah, in general, man. Um, I, <laughs> yesterday I was like, man, I'm sorry, I got heavy at the end, but it's it's very difficult, man. You know, because I'm I'm not the only one, but you know, the things that you were saying about Mikey, it's like I'm not me if it's not for you. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, you know, met my wife on tour with you, and a lot of us did. <laughs> you know, I I appreciate that, and it's funny because you were talking about um, leadership, and, and 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 I'm only gonna bring it back because of what you just said. Um, I'm not me if it's not for what Richard Pryor did, and I don't see him as a leader. I'm not me. If it's not for what, you know, I could name a lot of people who were not leaders. And that's the type of, that's how, if, if I had my way about how people would reference me later when I'm gone, it would be like that. Like, if you found something in what I said or did or how I presented myself and you found any sort of you know guidance or direction in that that's great but that's not what i'm here to do i'm here to just speak i'm here to talk i'm here to present a, a story and and it's a specific story it's not even like the story i present is very specific and detailed and it's not even this broad kind of a thing and so that's kind of why i don't want to be considered a leader and you know cornell west I consider him a leader, but I feel like without Richard Pryor, we might not have the Cornell West. That we, you see what I'm saying? And, and he, it, would, he would say the same. And, and so to me, and that's what I, and that's that's what I mean by that is like I don't, I don't want to be a leader, but I do love the idea that my presence and what I do enables people to find anything, find their voice, find their their find their actions find you know if, if if you can take what i say and do and apply it to what you got going on i'm for it 100 percent. and even if even on a physical if you could take some money i give you and apply it to what you're trying to do or if you could take uh i oh i put you on a tour and you take that and, and make that pop off you know all of that is all fair and i love being able to be part of that food chain but 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 when people want to start, my problem with leadership is that it puts you on this, it's an ego thing again. It puts you on this pedestal of like power or there's a power dynamic there. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that part of it. I don't want the power dynamic because that ends up playing into the ego again, you know? And my ego is not tight. You know what I'm saying? Like I know this about it. I I I my ego when when it gets when it gets cornered it weaponizes and it does things that I don't like. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why I've, for, for over a decade now, I've been trying to break that and, 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 and get, you know, ever since you can't imagine. Like, I, I know we keep coming back to that part of my life, but that was a very pivotal time in my life where I was really like, it's time for me to really figure out a lot of stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and that's one of the things that I've been working on for a long time. And I know we've talked about ego before, uh, but yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I I appreciate you all the way, man. Like you have always made me feel 
confident and, and comfortable. And you've also called me out on my shit when, when I've needed to be called out on my shit. And so for somebody who can do both of those things without making me want to hide, I think that's, that's a, those are, that's a beautiful trait that you have to be able to, to build somebody up and, or tear them down without making them want to run away from you. That's a, that's, I think that's, that's because we all run away from both of those things. You know, we all have a tendency to get awkward when somebody's building us up or when somebody's tearing us down. And you have a good, you have a good way to, to work with people. Well, one of the things that I'm hearing for, for, and, and, and like I said, you know, the, the thing that you said is nobody can, nobody can hurt me. They can either help me or they can't, but really the, and, and, and more of what I'm hearing you say now, and also what I've been sitting with myself, you know, for you and for, for, you know, others in this circle of people, you know, that, that helped me figure out what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, in my own journey is that really the difference between leadership and inspiration. And what I feel like you hear saying is like, leadership is not something that I'm interested in. And when I think about it on my side, when, when, cause I'm one of the people that put that on you is that that comes with all these expectations that you will be doing certain things on my behalf that really aren't for you to do. You know what I mean? But those are, those are things for me to do. And the difference of what I'm, I'm it's really, I'm, I'm still constructing it as I'm hearing you talk now. And uh, the space that you're in feels like really amazingly bright and pure and, and beautiful. And the, the difference there is that in inspiration, it's like possibly in this person, you will literally be seeing the reflection of what you also could do on your own. You know what I mean? Rather than following you in it, which has all of these built-in things of like, you're supposed to do this for me. You know what I mean? And many of those things are for us to do, you know. Um, but that inspiration is, is, uh, is extremely important, man. And I think that's really, the, that's really one of the things that we have as artists. And again, there's a hundred things that I could ask, but I think we're good. I think we have to... Thank you for having me, man. I want to thank my man Slug so much for this experience overall. You know, um, Slug was initially going to fly to Madison. When I first hit him up, I just said, hey, man, no expectation and no pressure, but I'm doing this podcast and we're doing the Travelers Tour. And I, it would really mean a lot to me if you would come out to one of these shows. I was thinking maybe Madison might be easy for you. Let me know. I'm happy to buy a flight and book a hotel and all this stuff. And he hit me back and said, just bought my flight. So he bought his own flight. I'm like, oh man. And that's his way. You know what I mean? He's like, I've, I mentioned many times that he's one of the most generous human beings that I've ever met. And he doesn't like me to tell the stories, but I certainly could have a whole podcast episode just telling stories of his generosity. But so he says, yeah, I'll be there. I'm, you know, I already bought my ticket and I bought my ticket home. And uh, I said, okay, dope. And uh, so he called me the day of and he said, yo, I'm on the freeway headed to the airport. And I was thinking, maybe I'll drive there. Could I drive there? I'm like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. He was like, I don't want to stress you out. He said, I think my car will make it. You know what I mean? But he's just one of the most like, he's also very, can be very fun and spontaneous. He's like, man, if I drive, maybe I can bring my son. 
And then we can go and like, he can skate, you know, his son is really into skating. He's like, maybe he can skate at the, the skate, the outdoor skate park in Madison. I'm like, okay, that sounds dope. So he went home, you know, got his son, <coughs> came to the show. And, you know, the, the episode that we showed last week, part one, you know, Slug and Brother Ali live on stage. We did that one at the Majestic Theater in Madison. And then this episode that we just, that we just got done listening to and, and watching is uh, the next morning at the hotel. And so we had this dope conversation. And then uh, I asked, like I said, hey, is it cool if I ride back with you? And so we rode back to Minneapolis and we had a beautiful, beautiful conversation, reconnected after, you know, not being around each other for a couple of years. You know, we've spent entire years of our lives where we were with each other more than we're with our spouses because we're on tour, you know, and promoting albums and all this kind of stuff. So... There's times where I was with Slug more than I was with my wife and the same for him. But we haven't seen each other in a couple of years. So we got to really hang out and kick it and his son is getting older and could really you know, contribute to the conversation and the experience we're having. It was really beautiful. And then Slug played me a collection of atmosphere music that is, <sighs> it blew my mind. It blew me away. I've enjoyed all the atmosphere music that they've made recently. You know, we talk about the fact that you can't imagine how much fun we're having to me is kind of like pinnacle atmosphere. But man, he played me a collection of songs. It might be their best work ever. It certainly is top three, you know. And I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it at all, but my God, when this collection of music comes out, I think it's going to be very, very impactful and very meaningful. I cry. <laughs> <laughs> I cried listening to it. I laughed. I was cracking up, you know. And so we really bonded again over music. And this is one of the friendships that I treasure most of all in this life is being able to to know that man and to be able to love him and be loved by him and to witness him and observe him and learn from him. And uh, our friendship has evolved, you know, over the years. And um, he's one of the people that, you know, I, the, the us and them of life was like, well, we're the people that do this. You know, when you're young, you really need that. We're the people that are doing this. And those people on the other side are doing that. And it's our way versus theirs. You have that in everything. You know, if you're, if you're in hip hop, it's like, we're the people that rap over sample drums. Those are the 808 people. And we're the people that sample. And those are the people that have keyboards. And we're the people that got a, a DJ with turntables and they got, you know, whatever. And then we're the ones that do this. And like, there's that whole thing in everything that we do. Over time, to me, it's like, the, to me, the us and them that I have now in my life is like, there are people that are really actively doing the work of sitting with themselves and learning ourselves and learning each other and being vulnerable and healing and, you know, really exploring and expressing ourselves and, and learn and healing. And then there are people that, are, there are people that are actively engaged in that and there are people that aren't. That's, that's the new us and them to me. And... Of all of those people, you know, Slug is somebody who continues to amaze me. It's not just that he amazed me when I was 20 and he was 25 and he figured out how to make a life as a weirdo Midwesterner that doesn't belong in any genre of music, you know, that, that we, can, we can make music and we can present it to the world and people will care and we can go and travel and be with them, you know, and do shows for them. And we can do shows in places where they don't do hip hop shows. 
and we can touch our fans directly and we can sell our music to them directly and we don't need the music industry if if it's helpful to to interface with them cool but we don't need them you know and then even as a songwriter as a creative and then as a as a business person and all of these ways that he's inspired me over the years and you know i was always the religious one I was always the one that had this religious tradition. I was always the sober one. I was always the one that, you know what I'm saying? When there's times where, you know, he was struggling with stuff and I would just kind of say to him like, hey man, I'm, I'm observing this and I'm, I'm just, I have questions about this thing, you know? And there was times where he would joke, Brother Ali is my spiritual advisor. But now, you know, I, I look at him and the and the level of reflection that he's done the level of really sitting with himself that he's done in the last several years is just, I have a whole new, just when you thought you couldn't respect anybody more than I respect that man, I now have a whole new respect for him. And um, it's a very, very beautiful thing. So thank you for being here. Thanks for sitting in on it. Thank you for rocking with it. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for contributing in whatever way you have. Please feel free to share this podcast with anybody you think might like it. Subscribe, uh, comment, rate, all of that good stuff. Head to brotherali.com to check out all the stuff that we're doing. Uh, special thanks to Slug. Special thanks to Mansur Panawala, to Amna Mirza. Special thanks to Last Word. Special thanks to Ant. Special thanks to Darian Washington. Uh, special thanks to the caravan crew, the people that that really support this podcast. Special thanks to the good people at Udimentary. Special thanks to Resma Minikin. Uh, the Travelers podcast is produced by Brendan BK1 Kelly and is a production of Travelers Media. Love you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.